Hello and welcome back to the Physio Matters podcast. This month in association with exerciseprescriber.com and this is session 68. Hello to all you listeners from us here at TPM PHQ. Uh, this is quite a lengthy podcast, so I'm going to keep the bookends as short as I can for you. Progress is rapid with the Manifesto for Reform, and I've been lucky enough to lay eyes upon the policies for the chapters. This document in itself is going to change the face of musculoskeletal practice, and as a result makes attendance to the Big R's conference really an absolute necessity. The steps forwards the document will help to create means that if you're not at the conference, I just don't think that you're going to be able to keep up um, and you're going to have to play catch up with all those attendees as they get a head start with implementation of the policies. Not to mention, of course, the amazing clinical content we have there on offer. So head to reform.physio forward slash conference. And if you purchase your ticket before the 10th of August, you'll get access to four webinars as a bonus to the ticket. Now, I know we have some listeners from outside the UK and don't fear we have an offer just for you as well. We will be streaming the whole conference to virtual ticket holders live. Not only that, but you will get a 20% discount on your ticket. Just add the code virtual early uh, with a capital V and a capital E and the discount will be applied to your ticket. Whilst there's no technical time limit to that discount code, we do have to limit the numbers somewhat so that the stream doesn't get overloaded. So don't delay on buying that ticket. Anyway, I'll be quiet now and let you get on with listening to this brilliant podcast with Tom Jessen on all things ridiculous, sciatic and painful. I'll see you on the other side. I am delighted to be here today. And I always say that, don't I? I always say I'm delighted. And, uh, and I always am. But today it's especially special uh, because... The gentleman that I'm about to introduce to you on the podcast, most of which I hope you've heard his name before, but um, Tom Jessen is one of three, well, it was four original apprentices that came onto the Physiomatics podcast team a few years back now, and has then grown in stature. We knew he was a, a special character when we met him, but also he's grown in stature, and especially in the space of sciatica. So we've had a podcast in which we wanted to get him on, but also then a topic that we knew we needed to speak into. So he's, he's playing both of those things, and we'll talk about why he's interested in that, that area in particular has brought him to a new type of prominence. Uh, but it really is great to, to have Tom here with me today to talk about this, uh, because he really speaks to it from various different angles. So without further ado, I want Tom to introduce himself and his story, and we'll then get stuck into the topic at hand. Uh, so thanks very much, Jack. I'm delighted to be here too. Um, I guess I'll just start by introducing myself a little bit. Um, I'm a physiotherapist. I work at the moment uh, mostly in Lincolnshire in a persistent pain service. Uh, relatively recent, um, sort of newcomer to the profession. Uh, so uh, before I was a physio, uh, I worked in, I was teaching English as a foreign language uh, in South Korea. Uh, a few jobs here and there before sort of deciding to um, train up and choose to become a physio. I graduated uh, a couple of years ago, um, went straight into MSK, uh, working with um, Connect Health, um, sort of in, in Newcastle, where I'm from. So did about a year and a half of um, MSK outpatients there, and then recently um, 
you know, had the opportunity to move um, to work, as I say, in a business and paint service uh, in Lincolnshire. Uh, so that's sort of my story. Uh, obviously, we met when I was at uni because um, you recruited me to sort of, I want to say help out. I don't uh, tag along with the, the podcast team a little bit. Um, so I kind of come to the events and stuff and do bits and bobs behind the scenes. Um, probably not as much as I should do. But <laughs> maybe make up for that today. Well, you've bit. been a busy boy, haven't you, in recent yeah, years? So yeah. there's, a, there's a good reason for that. But um, um, you then took that, that uh, I'd say, a bit <laughs> a stage further in that you really started to scrutinise the um, the literature and took a deep dive into some of the science as well as in practice. Because I think we all tend to overindulge on the actual clinical frontline stuff, see as many patients as you can and get that under, under your belt, whereas you never really put the books down. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what I'm, I'm interested in today. So I want to say why, if, if, if that is a fair characterization, did you not put the books down? And then how did sciatica mm. and neuropathic pain become something that you've become known for as well? Uh, from a purely personal point of view, um, I've always been a reader. Like, it's just sort of what I do. I like doing that. I'm a bit of an infovore. Um, I just like learning new stuff um, and have quite a high tolerance for it. Um, it's not really uh, one of the reasons I got into physio was because I knew it was something that I could do where I wouldn't have to stop learning. I didn't really want to be in a job where kind of you learn how to do it and then you just do it every day. So that's kind of why I got into physio really. And I'm quite lucky because, you know, whenever anyone chooses a profession, you don't really know what you're getting yourself in for. I'm quite lucky. I do find it really interesting. And, um, I don't know really how it came about that I've developed, or one of my particular interests is sciatica. Um, I think uh, I've had I've had sciatica myself, but I don't. It wasn't like a big deal. Like maybe we can talk about that today. But it sort of came and went for me. You're going to um, argue because you just didn't make a meal of it. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that. Because I'm so strong. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, no, I, I don't think that's really why I was that interested. Um, I've always been interested in in pain, like a lot of people. It, it's such a fascinating topic um and you know i can relate it back to some of my own experiences with kind of other sort of illnesses and things like that um and i think probably sprung from my interest in sort of pain and pain mechanisms generally i can remember when it first um i first sort of started focusing on sciatica i was doing the um so connect have this kind of accelerated development program they call it and um I was kind of given the task in this class, um, can you write like a patient-facing leaflet, like a patient information leaflet about um, radicular pain? And um, I said, yeah, well, that's fine. Yeah, that's my job. I'll do that. And I went home and I thought about it. And I think I was easily a few months in, into my practice at this point. I realized I didn't really know what radicular pain was. Right. Um, if you'd asked me, I could have probably talked about it for a couple of minutes and given like a sort of half answer. But I was also aware that there were these other kind of terms floating in that space, which hopefully we can get into today. So radicular pain, there's sciatica, there's referred pain, uh, nerve root pain. And I wouldn't really have been able to tell you what the difference between all, the, all those things was. And I had a probably a hunch that maybe some of my colleagues couldn't either. Some of these words being used interchangeably. Um, and again, maybe we can get into whether that's maybe not such a big deal or whether it's something we should worry about. Um, so I went home and I sort of read up on that, um, got my head around it, 
relatively easy, easily because it's not a difficult topic. And I think this is one of the interesting things is that like once you, um, the penny sort of drops, it's pretty obvious. And some people will be listening to this thinking, yeah, it's obvious. Well, why is he even talking about this? But I was interested that when I went and put all this kind of on Twitter, which, you know, naturally kind of you do this, you know, you learn something new, you put it on Twitter, it got quite a lot of attention. And um, the, um, what's the name of the Physio First um, In Touch, the magazine, uh, Physio magazine asked me to kind of write about it as well. Um, and I wrote about it for them. And that got quite a lot of attention as well. And so it's clearly some sort of, thing here that people are they don't, didn't know they didn't know until it was shown to them and it's kind of so it's just been an interesting topic from that point of view i think um one of the things that that i've i've been asked by others as to what it was about tom's sciatica piece and tom's sciatica thread on twitter that really caught the imagination of, of many people and um, there were various different things. And I think as well, there was such an interesting novelty, like you really did sort of trailblaze for a lot of people that have had this perception, at least, that you needed to be some sort of real leading light author that's known for their words in that space or that only lab-based scientists could speak to some of the specifics in that. But also, I think as well, I think when I reflected on it myself, what did I really like about it is because... You didn't speak to any of the jigsaw pieces that I didn't know, but I hadn't put them together, especially in the order in which you did, mm. or to understand the history and the legacy of the condition mm. and how that was informing how current management exists, how current understanding of these things existed, but also how we can check what needs to change in order for us to better serve the vulnerable patients in which we try to help. And so it was like those that's why you're saying there's some obvious bits and that's what's kind of nice because mm. that's what makes it accessible. Mm. But then the thing that's sort of novel and makes everyone shout about it, to my mind, is the, is the, the way in which you put those pieces together and also how methodical that process of building that puzzle seemed to be. And, and that's what I uh, really look forward to getting stuck into. Especially, I want to therefore start almost with the the history of the study of sciatica, which I think has been a really useful way for people to approach this topic and also to, to somehow shed the guilt of being worried about the fact mm. that they might have been a bit misled or not knowing whether the, some of these words are synonyms or whether the distinction is relevant. Mm -hmm. To hear the history of the studies yeah. and, and wh where yeah. it's come from was, was something that was very useful. So could we go there first? Mm. So I think um, the idea of um, sciatica, I think if you were to ask most people on the street, you know, what would cause a a trap nerve, as people call it, or like a pinch nerve, people would say, or slip disc. And one of the things that's quite interesting when you, you look at the history of um, sciatica, um, if we'll use that term for now, is um, how recent that idea is. So uh, certainly, kind of traditionally, it was thought to maybe be like a lesion of the sciatic nerve itself. So somewhere in the, like, somewhere down the leg, which is sort of intuitive because, you know, that mostly yeah. you feel it in your calf or you feel it in your thigh. Um, so people thought maybe it's some sort of uh, alteration in the humors or kind of latterly some sort of infection or maybe it's caused by stress or something that causes the nerve to become painful. Um, around sort of the turn of the sort of 1900s, that sort of time, you get anatomists um, starting to notice that discs can have problems. So they start to sort of document things like disc degeneration. Um, and 
but that's not really related to pathology in any way. Um, so through throughout the sort of um, uh, sort of nineteenth century, um, it's not that discs are st still aren't really being related to sciatica. And when we get to sort of the nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, you've got this idea that um, you know it's by this point it, it's no longer thought to be a problem with the sciatic nerve itself, and people have started to work out that it's the nerve root but they think it's probably more due to like spondylotic changes. So you could call it like arthritis because oh. it's quite easy to see that. Um, so some osteoarthritic overgrowth or sort of ligamentum flavum hypertrophy or something that crowds out the nerve root. And obviously that is accurate. That's sometimes what causes sciatica. Oh. Um, but as I say, it's not until relatively recently there's a sort of um, really interesting passage. There's this kind of spinal surgeon, I think he is. His name's Putti. Uh, this, this fella, Puti, in 1935, um, doing a, a spinal operation, and he sees this kind of white gunk um, that he's like, well, why is that there in the um, spinal canal? And um, he's got absolutely no idea why he's opened up this spine, and there's some stuff there. And I feel like even to the layman, to the person on the street, they might be able to realize, well, that's a herniation of the uh, disc material. That's nucleus pulposus. And um, this guy in 1935, is, he's saying, I have no idea why this is there. And he sends it off to uh, an anatomist, uh, some world-famous anatomist. And he said, the anatomist said, you know, if I didn't know better, I'd say that was the stuff inside the, the disc. But surely it can't be. That's ridiculous. Um, so even at this point, people aren't relating sort of so-called slip discs to sciatica. Um, but it is around the sort of mid-30s um, that uh, a couple of guys... Um, well, the names Mixture and Barr uh, write sort of this landmark paper um, where they do finally make this correlation, and that sort of begins the dynasty of the disc type of thing. So, right. okay, it's the disc's fault now. Mm. Um, and uh, when people have sciatica-type pain, when they've got this kind of shooting, lancinating pain down the back of their leg, that's because uh, they've got a slip disc. That disc is touching their nerve root. It's squashing it, and it's making the nerve sore. Mm -hmm. um, which is not like entirely inaccurate um, and it's pretty much the foundation of probably what's still like a lay belief of how sciatica works um, when you get uh, as far as I can make out and this is just from a sort of cursory reading into the 50s people are starting to recognize sort of anomalies to that story well th that's not the whole story is it and there's a really kind of interesting um study which you could never get done now from i think it's 58 59 um where a couple of guys smith and wright they are uh, spinal surgeons and by this point they're kind of used to doing um discectomies so people come in with sciatica they um sort of take away some of the disc that's compressing the nerve and those people tend to get better um but they thought well let's look into this a little bit more and see if that's the whole story um, and what they did was they you know, opened them up, took away the offending sort of disc extrusion or whatever it was, um, and they took a bit of thread, like a bit of nylon cord, I guess it was, tied it around the nerve root um, and left the two ends of the thread out, hanging outside this person's back after they'd sewn them up after the operation. So... The person had the operation. Um, they went into recovery a couple of days um, and tended to feel better, but they still had this bit of thread <laughs> just like hanging out of them. 
um, which was tied around the nerve root. So what Smith and Wright did was they give it a tug and see what happened, but not like a big tug, just like what they, they said, the definition they used was not to allow that thread to sort of indent their finger or their thumb. So if you imagine yourself pulling on two ends of a bit of thread that's looped around a nerve root, it's a very gentle yeah. um, sort of allowing that bit of thread just to retouch that nerve root. Um, so they're not re-squashing it, they're not recompressing it, they're just touching that nerve root. Yeah. And they found that when they did this with people, they pretty much immediately recreated that person's pain. And the person would go, that was my pain, I thought it had gone, that was absolutely horrible. Um, and thank them no <laughs> yeah, doubt in that, in yeah. that moment. <laughs> yeah, you can never do this today. Incredible. But um, the uh, so, so what this uh, and the, uh, the key thing is, of course, is the control groups, right? So they would also do this bit, put a bit of thread around people, people's unaffected nerve roots. So on the other side, or one or two levels above or below, and pull that bit of thread, and nothing happens. Mm -hmm. So you've got two pictures on an unaffected nerve root, you can pull on a thread, just give it a bit of contact, and the person doesn't feel anything, they don't mind. On a nerve root that's previously been compressed, there's something about that nerve root that can no longer tolerate even the slightest bit of contact. Sure. So that's very different to what was believed before, which is that this is just a compressive disease. There's been a compression, sure, not in every case, but certainly for these patients, but something else has happened. That nerve is lingeringly pissed off now. Yeah. Um, and I don't think, if I recall rightly, like in that paper, they didn't make this link to exactly inflammation, but it was kind of a, a bit of a landmark. And it's been sort of a developing process since then of finding out about, well, beyond just nerve compression, what is it that happens to that nerve root to make it sore? Um, as I, I've forgotten really the question you asked me, which was just to tell you, tell no, you a bit about the history. The, the question was mm. just to unpack that timeline. Mm. But I think from y you're the one that's sort of taken my eyes to those papers, and so I'm, I'm definitely reading them secondhand. But also, at that point, they've still, because of the, the natural heuristic they're thinking is within structuralism still, mm -hmm. it broadened the horizon from it being purely the disc's fault because there mm. was a consequence to the disc in that the nerve had become... So it, they started to, while not using the terminology, mm. they're coining a form of sensitization, but they've mm. definitely not at that point in time realized that there's a neuroinflammatory process, an independent neuroinflammatory system, mm. to some extent independent, mm. um, that, is, that is then changing the mm. dynamics. But, but je definitely a, a, a mark for them to realize that it ain't over yet. Just yeah. the, the resection, <laughs> the orthopedic style of, mm, mm. of it's fixed now. Mm -hmm. It wasn't going to be. Um, so so we're still, we've still got 50 years to climb. <laughs> um, did, did things then plateau in terms of our understanding for a while? Because some of the things I've mentioned that mm. they didn't get to that we have now, very recent. Mm -hmm. So mm. I'm wondering, was there something in between mm. or a reason as to why if it did plateau a bit? I must say I don't, I'm not really able to say exactly like how the, the research has progressed since then. Um, it's quite hard to kind of go back and find all the landmarks. This idea of neuritis, so an inflamed nerve has been a, around for a long time. Mm. I don't, it's hard to say how recently it's really been attached to sciatica um, and certainly how recently it, it's 
been thought of as equivalent, if not greater, in its sort of um, uh, contributions to sciatica as the disc. Um, but certainly, being a bit vague, but even as, as recently as sort of 2000, you can read uh, papers and reviews that are talking about this as if it's quite novel. Mm. Um, so it's certainly a relatively new idea. And yeah, it's still sort of unfolding as far as I can tell. And I think just this year, there was a really interesting um, paper by Albrecht that found sort of markers of inflammation, not only in the nerve root, but also in the spinal cord itself, which if you think about it, is quite a, a long way from, you know, L5, S1, for example. Um, so we're still kind of trying to map out the role of inflammation, but um, quite a lot is known, which I'm happy to sort of talk about. Sure, no, that's great. Can we just try and double back on the terminology mm. then? Mm -hmm. Because we're gonna go, we can go through radicular pain, radiculitis, mm -hmm. radiculopathy, sciatica, yeah. and and which are synonyms, which aren't, which can be used interchangeably, mm. which we should be bothered about. Mm. But then also, I want to try and get us towards what is sciatica <laughs> and see if we can brave that question. Yeah. Okay, so we could start with the uh, terminology and and. Um, Sci uh, let's, see, let's start with the kind of idea of radicular pain, uh, radiculopathy, and referred pain. <laughs> Sciatica, of course. I guess we'll leave that to last. Okay. Radicular pain is the pain that you get when the nerve root is somehow irritated. Uh, so the word radicular is just from the Latin radix, which just means root. It just means root pain. Um, and it's a pain condition. What's irritating the nerve root, I guess, will be a lot of the topic of this podcast, but generally speaking, it could be some sort of disc herniation. It could be sort of spondylotic changes which narrow or crowd out the space for the root. Uh, it could be something like a spondylolisthesis um, and other, other weird and wonderful things. But that's all radicular pain is. Radiculopathy is not technically a pain condition at all. It's when something happens at the nerve root that impairs conduction up and down that nerve. Uh, so what it is, it's a loss of function disorder. So if you think about what the job of the nerve is, um, if you know I were to touch your shoulder, there would be a little message going up a nerve through past the dorsal um, root ganglion, past your nerve root or up your nerve root into your spinal cord and up to your brain that tells you I just touched your shoulder. If there's a problem at the nerve root, then maybe that little action potential gets slowed down, interrupted, doesn't get up to your brain, and that might cause a bit of numbness there. And that's what we call radiculopathy. So those that conductive that impulse isn't getting through, and it works in the other direction too. So perhaps if you wanted to move your shoulder, you want a little electrical signal to go down from your brain. It wants to go like out the spinal cord, over the, through the nerve root. And if there's a problem there, that impulse isn't getting through, which means you'll not be able to move your shoulder properly or as with as much strength. And that applies to sensory reflex and motor loss. Yeah. Mm. And so if it was, say, patch numbness, mm -hmm. but no other motor changes, no reflex changes, it'd still then be considered a radiculopathy. So I, w I wonder if we could pick that up when we talk about objective assessment. Sure. I think if in a, in a perfect world, yes, but then you'd have to sort of take into account um, reliability of our assessment and all sure. that stuff. Yeah. But yeah, generally speaking, if someone has like a patch of numbness on the 
like that corresponds to a particular dermatome, it's indicative of yeah. a, a loss of a radiculopathy, meaning um, an impairment of conduction caused by a problem at the nerve root. So we can definitely, yeah, we'll think in hypotheticals for now, mm -hmm. and yeah. certainly on the on the pr on the principle hypothetical. Then yeah, that's the case. However, like you said, it's the practical mm -hmm. challenge of then that would call into question the, the reliability with such a, a one non-specific mm -hmm. measure. So no, that's that's great, and we'll, we'll double back to that. Um, so yeah, sorry to have interrupted. So radiculopathy mm. independent could be independent of pain. Yeah, absolutely. But so often coexist with. Often coexist. So for example, someone um, might have an episode of radicular pain or a painful radiculopathy. The pain might subside, but then they might continue to have some loss of nerve function. Um, that's by definition not radicular pain. They're not in pain. That's a radiculopathy. And you know, there's a, a little bit where kind of this gets into how much does this matter? I think it's important to know the difference because it does kind of help your thinking a little bit. Um, then we get on to referred pain. Um, referred pain, often you hear this term used just to mean pain that like travels places. So I, there's a back pain referring down the back of your leg. Um, it is technically something distinct from radicular pain. So referred pain, the classical explanation of referred pain goes by something called the convergence projection model, which is where uh, primary afferents, so sensory nerves from two different places, converge in the same place in the spinal cord and get passed up together and the brain gets, I'm doing air quotes, confused <laughs> by where that information is coming from. Right. So everyone knows from watching you know, uh, TV, movies, that uh, when you have a heart attack, your heart might not necessarily hurt. You get pain down your left arm, for example. And I know that's not always the case, but that would be a case of referred pain that everyone's used to. Yeah. Uh, similarly, if someone has a left shoulder pain, um, you might think uh, include a problem with the spleen in your differential diagnosis because that's what they call visceral referred pain because the brain is pretty bad at localizing um, visceral input. Somatic referred pain is quite similar. And again, this is something we see all the time. So someone has a rotator cuff problem, but sometimes they'll have this pain that creeps down almost into their bicep or into their deltoid. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, the one that would get often confused for sciatica is someone who has low back pain that then sort of creeps down into the back of their leg, sometimes even past their knee into their calf. And again, going by the classic definition of what happens there, that is some sort of nociception, so danger messages coming from the spine, let's say for argument's sake, a facet joint, or from the SIJ or something like that, going into the dorsal horn, and as it goes into the dorsal horn, there's also um, afferents, so other sensory information coming in from down the leg, and it all gets jumbled up. When it arrives at the brain, the brain gets confused and it can't really tell where the pain's coming from or it starts to blur, it can't localize it very well. Um, now, that's there's going to be people screaming at the... <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> because that's like just the classic definition of referred yeah. pain. I know it's like much more complicated than that. But the point is, it's a failure of the central nervous system to localize where the primary source of nociception is. Sure. And we see that often in clinic as back pain that goes down the back of the leg. Yeah. And so with the... If, we were to, if I were to press you on how relevant the distinctions are, 
where do you think it's most important and where do you think it's least important? Do you mean like in clinical practice? Yeah, so <coughs> um, for me, most important for us to have some sort of professional credibility to use a term mm. that's certainly for spinal surgeons, they mm. care about radiculopathy. Mm. And if you were to use that interchangeably for someone with no loss of function at all, mm. you'd look a mug. Yep. But then there's other circumstances where we, we, we'd be splitting hairs mm -hmm. With a patient, for mm, example, mm. They, 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 you're not going to correct them for the sake of duty. So nope. I just wondered where you're... I, I, I could think of a few other things where it would yeah. be more or less important, what you'd say. And it's a really... Because it goes down to this wider question, which is when is being specific important in MSK practice anyway? Sure. And um, the, the... I don't. I hope it's not an evasive answer, which is um, it's not important until it is. Sure. Um, so let's say someone comes in and I, I'm not sure um, if you know they've got back pain, their leg hurts. I'm not quite sure whether that's a nerve root pain, like a radicular pain, whether it's a referred pain. Um, and of course, you know, we need to really emphasize that often it could just be both, which is why, why it's often so confusing. Um, but I'm not quite sure which it is. So I put 10 minutes of my time with them into finding out. And at the end of it, I'm saying, you've got radicular pain. I'm pretty confident. I'm feeling really pleased with myself. Um, your question to me is like, so what? Like, does that make a difference to what you're going to do and what you're going to advise them? I think my answer to that is I'd strongly agree with what you're saying about the, the principle of doing a good job of something um, and being able to... Um, be as accurate as you can about your diagnosis and the terminology that you're using. If I were to give you some examples about how it might change the reasoning, um, it would certainly put you into monitoring mode, right? So whenever anyone has radicular pain, you want to be a bit more vigilant about continuing to monitor the health of that nerve, possibly about asking red flag questions, um, making sure that person understands their situation in those terms as well. Um, so it puts you into monitoring mode maybe a bit more than you otherwise would have been. In terms of your management, I'm a bit skeptical that certainly if someone has an acute onset of ridiculous pain, uh, maybe we come to it later, would it really change what you do in the first few weeks? Probably not. It might be that you want to offer them or speak, offer them to speak to their GP about some anti-neuropathic pain medication. But even then, and hopefully we come to it today, there's not a huge amount of evidence that that's something that's effective for them. I think I'm going to kind of come back to this kind of hope it's not a fence-sitting answer of I completely would... I, I'm a big advocate of not being specific until you have to be. And I think um, if someone has a new onset of back pain and leg pain, the things that would probably change your management are unique to that person, as corny as it sounds, like what's their life position, what are their beliefs, expectations, rather than your actual diagnosis. But you need to have that diagnosis there for if things go wrong, if they don't get better. You know, for example, you probably don't want to hang on to someone with radicular pain for as long as if someone just has referred pain. Mm. Well, this is a space where I feel like you've certainly ended up Ending up in a sim similar space, I, I can't help but find myself almost bandwagoning you a little bit maybe here, but it's like the specific stuff, you've got to know it 
in order to then not use it. Mm. And there, is, but there has been, and that's been a, a drum I've been banging for a long time. Um, uh, treat specific things specifically and general things generally is one of my little teaching mantras. And one of the trends, though, especially in, and I hope you, you know, you, you, you hope you recognise this, but push back if you don't. In in pain services, in which you, you know, you, and probably hopefully not the one you work in, but as a general rule, there's been a broadening, a generalising. That is appropriate, and I get it, but that should be as an evolution from mm. specific knowledge. Mm. And that because we're not necessarily going through specifics in, an, in anatomy with patients like we might are used to, for good reason, mm. there has been a tendency to then either leave them at the door or for them to be undertaught now. Mm. From your study of this, you've, you've not left the specificity, you just don't bring it to bear mm. as much as you used to. Am I representing you fairly there? I think why it's hard to articulate is because it's it's not explicit. The, the, there's not an exercise that, that would particularly change. Like, uh, oh, this person's got ridiculous pain. I need to give them this exact exercise now. <laughs> right. So that's why it's not um, yeah, yeah. it's difficult to articulate. But at the same time, I'd hate to pretend it doesn't matter. And it might just be, you know, naturally, I do think it matters else. I've wasted quite a lot of my life. <laughs> <laughs> but... For for example, one of the uh, and um, there's a, a lady called Tina who who runs this um, fantastic blog. Everyone should go there now. Livingwellpain.net. Um, and I don't know much about her exact story, like the early days. But one of the things she often says was that no one um, ever suggested to her that her pain might not get better when it came on. So she has sciatica. I should I should have stipulated mm -hmm. she has sciatica. And um, in the early days, no one ever sort of told her this might not go away. Mm -hmm. um, now, and again, this is why it's kind of hard to articulate because it's not so black and white. But if someone had a, an acute onset of severe, ridiculous pain, I probably would be a bit more pessimistic about their outcome than if someone had kind of back pain that was referring down their leg. And in that case, it does inform your management, informs the way you talk to that person the way you help them to kind of conceive of their expectations for the future. It's just difficult to say how. <laughs> sure. And you don't want to be then too pessimistic to the, in case they are of the, mm. of the smaller percentiles mm -hmm. that, that then mm -hmm. actually it does mm -hmm. resolve either, mm -hmm. either quickly or otherwise mm -hmm. for full, full recovery. So I get, you know, I can, I can get that. Um, to some extent we've been talking and all our examples have been brought to bear on the, the back and lower limb. However, a lot of it could have been, transposed to the to the neck and arm particularly mm -hmm. so until we talk about the word sciatica in mm -hmm. which it then starts to be a bit more specific the utility of that term uh, both professionally and across society then um it's it's pretty damn famous mm -hmm. do you if i had to force you on a binary and then you can unpack it do you like it or not sciatica is a term yeah um you are jack Soz. <laughs> No. No. Why? Because, um, so the, the, the pedant in me says it, it's just not that accurate. So I think it's technically a nerve root is not the sciatic nerve. And if someone has an, a lesion of their upper lumbar spine, then that's certainly not the sciatic nerve. Mm. Um, and I tend to believe that right words cause right actions. We should be careful about the terminology we use. Um, 
so we should probably not use that term. And I'm not alone in saying that. This kind of most people would consider it to be um, people kind of again air quotes in the know would consider it to be antiquated. Um, and then in that case, maybe we should be documenting um, in our notes this person has um, a painful radiculopathy or a or radicular pain if they've got no loss of function. Um, my, but I am not by no means a hard liner on that. And if someone um, comes to me and they've got a new onset, they're in a raging radicular pain, and um, I'm not going to sit there and go, well, technically it's not <laughs> called sciatica. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not what they want to hear. Like, just go with it. And I think the nice thing about sciatica is that it 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 means something to people. Um, it's not possibly not quite a very mysterious term like radicular pain is. Sure. And also, um, there's a perception out there that sciatica is quite a severe problem. And I know we're all about kind of de-threatening things, but it's, it's quite good to be able to use a word that meets the severity of the problem, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. You know, if imagine sort of Joe Bloggs on the street going into his office and, and saying, I've got ridiculous pain. People will go, all right, okay, mate. If, someone, if he says, I've got sciatica, people will go, oh, no, I'm, I'm really sure. sorry about that. And that's sure. good for people to be able to do that. And it, it can also play the other way, though, as well, can't it, where... People might, might know of people with poor outcomes for sciatica, but mm. they also might know of people with good outcomes for mm. sciatica because they've heard of sciatica. Yep. So it, it can, and, and then obviously on a, on a case-by-case, mm. patient-centered basis, we need to be understanding that, that finding out what it means to them mm. understands as to whether or not we do split hairs in the direction of what that means. Mm. Um, and also helping people with, you know, <laughs> anterior pain uh, in their lower limb to try and sometimes that's more relevant because mm. we know in an age in which they, they're only going to bash someone be that them or, or one of their family members might tap something into Google and, and it'd be they'd, they'd come back in waving their search results in your face mm. if you weren't mm. to at least try to, to suggest what that term means but mm. it's interesting because yeah I, I did force force your hand on the on the <laughs> yes no um, and I know you're not a hard liner on it but it's a similar similar frustration I have but also one that I've found myself not necessarily acting on as much as I used to. Mm. Um, I used to, I went through a phase of being, for the same reasons, but as you mentioned, the particulars of language mean that we will be more particular with how we aspire to be better in that in that space. However, on a patient by patient basis, it, it, it came to I came to realise it mattered less if I just held my tongue for a little bit. It, mm. it sort mm. of sorted itself out, um, and the coherence you've sp spoken to the coherence between the terminology and the severity in which is being felt at the time then that that seems to be something that does seem super relevant to people feeling heard or feeling felt as another term that gets mm. used there from your study in this in this space is it that sciatica or these symptoms are seen as being perceived amongst or similar to other common conditions and pathologies in MSK practice or is there a, uh, is there a distinction that seems to be relevant from uh, from patient experience mm. so i think there's a <coughs> a huge continuum that reflects the heterogeneity of the condition so if you think of all the different nerves that are bundled up in a nerve root and then the fact that it, it's also surrounded by the nerve innervor and the nerves of the nerve that can also be like cause some sort of nociceptive input like sciatica feels totally different to different people so my experience of sciatica was that i um 
hurt my back in the gym. Um, and then a few weeks later, this weird sort of na- nagging, tugging pain started traveling down the back of my leg and it hung out in my calf for a few weeks, then went away. And it was probably, it was very benign sort of experience. Banana out of 10. <laughs> oh, can't believe that. It's got to be no, cut, surely. We'll cut that. Right, that. sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, but we know that, like, for other people, it's completely different. And I would also say that in a basic sort of MSK caseload, um, probably the, the people who were suffering the most that I see or used to see when I worked in GP practice were the people with sciatica. And I'm, I've realized I'm still saying the word sciatica, even though I said I was against it. Oh, no, it. no, that this podcast Which is much easier than ridiculous pain. We're, we're, we're going with it, yeah. yeah we're yeah. going to have to lean into it for sake of ease. So it would be fine. like half an hour longer if I kept saying <laughs> ridiculous pain slash ridiculopathy. Yeah, yeah you imagine how long this title <laughs> for it is going to be. It's going to be slash, 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 slash. But no, that's fine. We'll keep saying sciatica. I think the, the listeners will forgive yeah. us that. And it's borne out in the qualitative research as well, which is that... Um, when you survey people who have sciatica that doesn't get better and really affects their life, um, they express it as being something different, something other than low back pain. Um, a lot of people say things in line with, I, I didn't know that things could hurt this much. Um, a lot of people suggest uh, have said that they they give hypothetical situations like if there was a gun next to my bed i think i would use it i would shoot myself um a lot of people mention suicide when they talk about sciatica um and i think that i would be the first to admit that it certainly took a good sort of year or so of my practice before you know when things are obvious when you notice them but before i noticed how sciatica for some people is much much worse than 90 percent of the stuff we see and we think we have to really um that does change coming back to well how does it change your reasoning being alert to that fact does in many ways certainly in the way you communicate with the patient um if appropriate um having done your exam and you know check for all the sort of red flags and things you should tell them that it's normal for it to be that painful um just because this is five times as painful as you know your other experiences with musculoskeletal pain doesn't necessarily mean that you're in any grave danger or gravely ill or something and people need to hear that because mm. otherwise it, there's a risk of them thinking no it's more than what you're suggesting yeah. it is mm. similar no to frozen shoulder in a way yeah yeah where it's like i've had a painful shoulder before this is really really yeah. painful yeah. um but we need to say that that's okay i've seen two people like you already this week not to you know belittle it or anything no um and the other thing is that it, it gets onto, and again, I'm, I'm always a big advocate of, sometimes it can sound callous, but pain is part of life. People have had back pain since well before physios were invented. I don't think we necessarily need to do everything we can to treat everyone who develops an ache and a pain. And I think doing so is probably um, not a, a net contributor to society, but that's yeah. a different topic. Sure. But then when you start to really reckon with how profoundly painful and life-altering sciatica can be, even though many of the uh, short-term or interventions like an injection in long-term don't show any benefit over watching and waiting, you start to think, well, perhaps it's still a very important thing for these people to have this intervention Mm -hmm. because this is not the sort of pain that 
you you or I could cope with, as far as I can make out. I don't think I could cope with it. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, so obviously, I, I suppose it'd be remiss for me to not mention to those that don't know about my experience with the with sciatica. I nearly didn't use the <laughs> term again, but we're going to double down on it. Um, and and people can be, I think, session forty four, perhaps, of the podcast off, off the top of my head, in which I am interviewed about my experience of it. A podcast that we only did as I was feeling like I could I could state that I was then at least I'd met a threshold in which I wasn't then suffering with. Uh, however, it seems to be something that I inevitably do need to live with occasional shin pain now. Um, I've finally got my power back and stuff, but as a general rule, um, that's something that, uh, that was an experience that then led me to have the first and only surgery I've had in my life. Um, and the pain was different. And I think we're just mm. to speak to to my experience, which does seem to play out in the literature as well, is the, the positional discomfort that is so different to every other, <coughs> most other pains that you can experience, where there is usually a position of not necessarily be to be pain-free, but to mm. be, a, a be this would make it worse, this would make it better, but because of the, the sort of difference in the way in which if you over-fidget on it, it might feel better briefly, and then it's worse, and it comes mm. searing back. So, it's so it behaves so bizarre compared to our usual concept of pain. And and that was an experience that I certainly certainly felt mm. and, and patients described. Mm. And so that difference there seems to be seems to be quite relevant. So I'd certainly uh, be able to double down on that with my one-off anecdote. And I think it's Im uh, important to add as well that uh, going back to a lot of the qualitative research, um, a lot of people were saying that they a felt maybe doubted because, as you say, that. The pain is a bit different. Um, mm -hmm. The obvious thing to mention, of course, is things like pins and needles, tingling, um, pain out of proportion to movement, odd feelings like running water, all that stuff. Um, and then people feel doubted by their friends and by the clinicians that they see about, you know, they think, well, maybe they don't believe me. And they also, um, I don't know if it's the right phrase, but they doubt themselves. Like, sure. am I going crazy? Yeah. And I think it's important for us to remember, you know, as people who... Uh, understand this condition and see people with it it's hard for us to imagine what it would be like if you'd never really even come across it and all of a sudden this starts happening to your body i mean i, I when i had sciatica i was um in um i was a student physio student four years ago and um so i i had a little bit of knowledge but it still was really weird like it's just a weird thing to happen yeah. and people you need to have that open discussion with with people you can do it during the objective exam. Like, this is a bit where you get your tingling. Okay, oh look, it's also a little bit numb there as well. And just uh, uh, provide like this kind of online commentary to the exam. Why are you just testing this? Why are you doing that? And people might not understand everything that you're saying, but at least they kind of get an inkling of this guy knows what's going on and he doesn't seem unduly worried about it. Sure. Yeah, I think that the, uh, the thing that you've mentioned there that I've, I haven't yet is how it doesn't feel especially human. It feels it feels odd mm. in such a mm. unique way. Mm -hmm. The electrical shock type mm. sensation, which is something that you can associate with inanimate objects and electricity that, that you just don't perceive as being mm. biological. Mm. And therefore, it feels so different that it clearly needs to be quite specifically either investigated, treated, comprehended, mm. um, and it is, is relevant. So no, it's a really interesting, interesting point. I want to then... As for what you feel the evidence-based take is on etiology and causation and, and what it is that, that sort of does that, because there's lots of contributing factors yeah. that we've talked about. 
but also we're unapologetically talking in, 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 the, in the language of structuralism, um, at least initially, um, which sometimes surprises folk. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Nina Schmidt makes no apologies and mm-hmm. didn't mm-hmm. on this podcast as mm-hmm. to why that is a good place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, what's, your, what's your sort of take on it from your, from your looking at the literature? So, I mean, you've hinted there at um, this, this idea of structuralism. Um, I'm not sure if it's a helpful, you know, structure's always there. I, I know in, Anina as, as well talks about this difference between peripheral and central changes. <laughs> I think may, uh, maybe we come come back to that. But I, I mean, I certainly am happy to be told uh, I'm I'm wrong or old-fashioned or or something but I certainly still think of sciatica as a nerve root problem which some people listening will say well yeah obviously and some people listening will say that's very um reductive, reductive of you yeah sure. and I wonder if that's um me being l- just led by the research that's out there because you could spend the rest of your life reading about nerve roots but you'd be hard-pressed to find a paper about what actually happens in the brain when someone has particular pain unlike back pain there's just doesn't seem too much of it um but i um i don't think it really another way to look at it is from mri of course so we know that with back pain um findings on mri are so common in people who are asymptomatic as to be rendered almost irrelevant in people who have ongoing low back pain um, and most people are quite comfortable with that concept. For radicular pain, I don't think it's quite as clear-cut. Um, for a start, so the incidental findings, so people in, who are asymptomatic and have nerve root compression, uh, there's quite few of them, so maybe 2.5 to 5% of people. So it's not like, you know, you can say to someone with back pain, don't worry, everyone's got degenerative discs. Not everyone has nerve root compression. It's very, very rare. And the people who do... Most of them will have some sort of radicular pain, so maybe about two-thirds of people with nerve root compression. Um, in one sort of longitudinal study, uh, also the Suri et al., they found that everyone who had a disc extrusion also developed radicular pain. Um, in another study, um, let's say, uh, the numbers tend to be around sort of 70 80% when they put them in an MRI. And that's even like, well, we'll not going into that too much. But then the other side of that is that in all these studies, plenty of people develop radicular pain without <coughs> having any sort of nerve compression. <coughs> um, and the extent of the nerve c- root compression doesn't really correlate with the severity of the symptoms. Um, a year down the line, whether or not people got better, you can't really tell from looking at their MRI. Sure. Um, so... It's, I think, it's just an interesting topic because sometimes when you're with back pain, there's almost a, uh, this temptation to be nihilistic about structure because, God, I just don't know how much it matters. And mm. even if it does, I don't know how we can tell. Yeah. With radicular pain, there's, there's definitely an element of structuralism there. Mm-hmm. Um, th- I, my the vague sort of summary would be that the longer the pain goes on, the less relevant it is, but it's certainly relevant. What seems to take over is yes the sort of central changes but also changes the nerve root so this this nerve root can become um inflamed this kind of idea of neuroinflammation Mm. um it can become demyelinated 
so the kind of myelin sheath can start, start to break down. Um, you can get, um, so obviously we would expect sort of sodium channels in the nose of Von Vier throughout the nerve where they should be. Then you can get ones that get bunched up in the nerve where they shouldn't be in the nerve root. And those can start causing the nerve root to sort of fire off action potentials. Um, ischemia, so the nerve doesn't have the blood flow that it needs. So there's a lot of stuff that's been documented actually happening at the nerve root itself that does also correlate with with pain. That's a very vague answer to your question. I'm happy to no, talk I about any one is. of those. I think you're being, more being hard on yourself to suggest that that's vague. You needed to list them. Mm. I suppose, though, that points to something you've mentioned earlier, which is that the the specifics of that are going to matter to the specifics of the intervention, which might mm -hmm. be required to alleviate some of at least that physiology. Mm -hmm. Never mind if that's you know mm -hmm. mapping onto symptomology, but just to just to try and see if we see if you you're willing to give a take on on causation. Without we, I know we derailed the podcast if we weighed in on on your take on causation, and we, we it's an yeah. interesting topic. <coughs> but I just mean, uh, let's say on a patient level, mm. when patients, and you'll have inevitably been asked this question this week, if not um, at least very recently, is mm. that what do you think is causing it then? Mm. So I mean in the lay term of causation, mm. so what's the major biggest fish to fry? Mm -hmm. Would you be comfortable suggesting your disc? Or your nerve <laughs> that's then been irritated by said yeah, disc? Yeah, so I think... Um, we, I, I don't want to go too much. And you obviously don't know that it's someone's disc without an MRI. And um, obviously it depends on the age, the kind of nature of the injury that you can maybe make a bit of a guess. But at the end of the day, you don't know and you should sure. tell someone. Mm. Um, but if it seems to sort of fit with a pattern of their injury and, the, you know, their um, certain kind of age bracket, you can kind of give them a, a list of the things that might be, make a guess of what you think it might be. If they're that sort of person that can tolerate that uncertainty, it's a different topic. But I find most people, if you're open about your uncertainty to, the, to them um, and still give them your best guess, they're absolutely fine with that. Mm. Um, so I'm absolutely happy to kind of suggest, suggest to someone who's got an acute onset of radicular pain that it's due to a particular structure. As long as you don't uh, act as if you've got this omniscient sort of uh, view of what's going on in, the, on in their body. What you should also, and this is so important, there's um, a guy called Rob Goldsmith has got a bit of um, qualitative research um, in print about this, is you should give them what we could call like a two-step or a two-stage explanation. So you should say, it seems like, and again, this I can't stress enough, this is for an acute onset of this kind of pain, it seems like something is compressing your nerve. Um, it could be any of these things. Um, if you want to make a guess at what it is and then say, well, what happens when the nerve gets compressed is it gets irritated or it gets sensitive or it mm -hmm. gets pissed off or it becomes injured. Some, some term that then directs attention not only to the thing that's squashing the nerve, but the nerve itself being affected. Yeah. Um, and this is so important down the line because the qualitative research is full of people who have had an MRI and there's no nerve root compression anymore because it's 10 months later and they're com in complete consternation because it's like, well, what was causing it all this time? Am I going crazy? Or people who had um, a surgical intervention which has freed up the nerve 
but it still hurts. Um, and so it's really important that people have this idea of this two-stage explanation. Something's probably crowding out the nerve, compressing it, if you think it's appropriate to say that, but also the nerve itself then becomes inflamed and irritated and just not very healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yeah, it sets them up to avoid disappointment in the long run. It also opens up your options in physio, right? Yeah. yeah. If it you want to do that, like, why would someone who has a, uh, who thinks that their nerve is being pinched um, and that's the cause of their problem, why would they do exercise? Sure. Yeah. And uh, it it's definitely leans into to my bias there with regards to using terms like irritation. Mm-hmm. Also, um, to be irritable mm-hmm. and irritated is something that the way in which in our culture it is used, um, it means that you've got that this f- this more flex in the system than mm-hmm. say trapped, mm-hmm. pinched. Mm-hmm. It's it's got a different way in which we can use language to try and move it mm-hmm. towards. You know, as people, we become less irritable, not just through tangible, specific things. There's also a recognition that the context in which uh, we are irritable, mm-hmm. um, etc., just makes it a bit more malleable, doesn't it? Um, just to make sure we can close this little chapter then on terminology, particularly, um, which causation naturally does still keep us in. Um, do you do you feel? Because I, I sort of raised this with with Nina, I think about about traps nerves and pinch nerves and and the perception then that comes from them needing to then be untrapped through mechanical means or surgical means and the things that then the treatments that flow from that w- totally naturally and perceptually mm. from the patients. Um, do you th- do you see it as being uh, an, an entrapment neuropathy, uh, uh, the more more technical term for that? Mm. Do you think that those are those are terms that ideally we should try and uh, move away from, particularly in the patient language, or do you think that again that's something that we're being too 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 gentle to, and that they're they're fine for most? I think um, <laughs> I'm trying to give you a, a a controversial, exciting answer, but it's just a case of it's a bit wishy washy again. I would never introduce the term trap nerve, and I, I don't think most people would because it does seem nocebic it's it's just it's just horrible um or to me it is anyway Mm -hmm. and as you said it has that sense of finality army nerves trap now um and again we don't have a good idea of what's going on in our patients bodies but very often it's probably not right nerves can tether and they do lose excursion after a disc lesion that's why people lose straight leg rays and um so there's definitely some sort of pressure they can be pinned but we don't really know that that nerve is trapped. So I would never introduce the phrase trap nerve. But I wouldn't want to um, pander to the patient and I wouldn't want to lie to them by saying, don't worry, your nerve's absolutely fine. It's just sensitized because I don't know that's true. And I don't see any reason to battle with people if they come in and say, I think I've got a trap nerve. You might want to slip in, say, maybe not trapped, maybe a bit compressed there. But I don't think there's a need to battle with them. And so, uh, this is maybe just me speaking from my experience and from me, is the temptation to correct people and to make them see, um, make them leave happy um, can often just turn into this sort of people being at loggerheads. Like sure. So it depends on the timing as well, mm. doesn't it? And it also just on the, on, the, on the presentation, the character, the mm. circumstances, how well you feel it's going. But it's easier to move someone from, from trapped to compressed mm-hmm. to irritated to mm-hmm. sensitized. Mm-hmm. If you try to jump from trapped to yeah. sensitized, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. both 
it being yeah. false, as you rightly have described, and, and you, you're taking a stab, mm-hmm. and you're just trying to, uh, you're doing it for you rather than for them. Yeah. Um, yeah. But also trying to take those stages, <coughs> and perhaps might be something to aspire to, but not necessarily as mm-hmm. a matter of, oh, right, okay, you've mentioned the trap nerve, whereas if it triggers a flow, uh, a flow yeah. chart in some people, and yeah. say this is why that's false. Yeah. And that's temp- it's tempting. Like when, when someone says to me, uh, uh, what's the problem? Oh, I've got a degeneration. Immediately want to show them that chart. I've got the jinky paper yeah, chart. Yeah. Is that what you mean? It's been laminated. <laughs> it's ready here for, for you to... Actually, you don't. Um, but it's yeah. just like... Yeah, no, I, I, get, I get that. And it's also something that I... I hope I've never been this guy, but sometimes people have, uh, people have wondered if, you know, um, especially after the, the, the whole... After my story, there was the, the slip disc, that jam donut, then... Um, various different pastries that were associated <laughs> with it. Um, but, but people have always wondered if, therefore, it's a trigger word for me that means if they mention in, in clinic, they'll say, mm, I, mm. I, I think it's a slip disc, or I had a slip disc before, my mum had a slip disc, so as if I crack my knuckles yeah. and then go to work putting them right for the next 10 minutes. Um, it's, it's just, of course, of course, not true, but also just unnecessary. It's all about the relevance of that, because they sometimes mention it in passing, and it's actually not something they associate with anything major. Mm. And because it's something that actually in their circumstance, in their family circumstance, it's a matter-of-fact thing that's like them telling you about an ankle sprain. Or if they said ankle strain and it wasn't sprain, would you have put that right? No, because yeah. of course you wouldn't, because it didn't matter. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a funny balance. And uh, you're right to, to nuance your answer as to being, it depends. And, and, uh, and I'll, I'm sure that the listeners will forgive you for that, as I do. Let's move to key assessment techniques then. Mm. Some, some natural things that would overlay a little mm. with the podcast I did with Nina. And I know you're uh, hopefully going to be putting something together with Nina to try and weigh into where we were. I was criticised, and me and Nina were criticised for not talking more on treatment and, and the actual... Okay. Um, so I, I know that that's a, an angle that I'm sure you guys will explore. But what are the key assessment techniques for a sciatica presenting itself to you in, in clinic? Mm. So I think... Um, the one that springs to everyone's mind is what we call hard neuro. Does anyone else except physios call it hard neuro? Do you know? I'm not sure. That's a good point. No. A neurological exam. Yeah. Um, I think the the, the thing you, you want to do is w- before you do your neuro exam is to ask why you're doing it. So when you talk to someone and you're you know, you're listening for a lot of things, but since we're on the topic of diagnosis, you're listening to try and work out, well, what's causing this person's leg pain? Um, what's pers- causing this person who has back pain to have pain down the back of their leg? Um, and even as you talk to them, you're going to be weighing up a couple of options. So we come back to this thing between the idea of radicular and referred pain being quite similar to one another. Um we there's not really a kind of um there's been a few attempts and maybe it's just me being fussy i'm not that convinced by any of them but there's not really a kind of very sensitive and specific sort of bundle of tests or signs or features that you can really use to tell the difference between the two um i can only speak for what i would do which is i have a an idea of what a classic referred pain looks like in my mind an idea of classic features of sciatica in my mind and um almost like a pair of scales you know one weighs against the other sometimes it's completely obvious immediately someone has um sort of electric leg pain with pins and needles and no back pain at all that's ridiculous 
Um, but sometimes you have to kind of weigh those features against each other. Um, so for example, if someone has, um, you know, the classic referred pain is kind of an aching, gnawing, dull pain. Um, often the leg pain is not quite as bad as the back pain. Um, doesn't necessarily go past the knee. Um, it's quite diffuse, so they can't really point to an exact area of the pain. They sort of gesture to it. Whereas with radicular pain, again, classically, um, it's more specific, so they know exactly where they feel it. Yeah. Um, it's, the descriptors are more likely to be electric, sharp. They're more likely to mention nerve-type symptoms, paresthesia, that type of thing. And um, often the leg pain is worse than the back pain. It goes down past the knee. But really, none of those things are pathognomic. None of those things are absolute dead giveaways. Um, so what you have to do is kind of, you know, weigh them against each other. And um, by the time you come to your objective, you've got this kind of prior probability. What do you think it probably is? And then the objective is just a case of collecting a bit more data to see if you can change your mind, basically. Um, the other thing, uh, maybe getting detoured a little bit, is I don't think sometimes people appreciate how unlike radicular pain, radicular pain can be. Right. So if we go back to that study with <laughs> the thread, for example. Yeah. One of the things they found there was if they tugged extremely gently, um, like a really gentle pressure on that nerve, these people got a nerve root elicited pain that was just in their buttock or just in their shoulder. And these are things that might typically be diagnosed as piriformis syndrome so thought of mm. as being kind of local to that particular tissue but if you really start to look and be aware that radicular pain can manifest in a very local place um i think a lot of yeah say isolated buttock pain is just ridiculous yeah um so you shouldn't discount the possibility of someone having radicular pain just because they don't have that classic picture sure and of course i think as by probably most people know by now, really only about a third of radicular pain is dermatomal. So two thirds of the time it's going to be spreading all over the place. Yeah. So with all these kind of this kind of jumble of, well, what would make it referred? What would make it ridiculous? You've kind of weighed them against each other and you come to your objective exam and you've got a hunch of what it might be. Um, I think most people you know, know how to do a hard neurological exam, reflexes, test muscle power, um, test power not with a kind of um, short, sharp um, bit of resistance, if you see what I mean, yeah. a sort of prolonged three or four pressure, seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, preferably like building over time so they have a chance to adapt to it and kind of get their um, motor units recruited. Yeah. Um, testing light touch, um, preferably or ne probably necessarily, really, not with your hands um, because they have a temperature, so with a bit of... Um, paper or cotton bud if you have it available um and when you've done your reflexes you've done your my as we call them myotomes and dermatomes you've um now tested that person's large fibers so they're yeah. a alpha and they're a beta fibers um that conduct impulses to and from the muscles and conduct um sort of non-noxious sensation so light touch um, what you haven't tested um, is their small fibers, their C fibers and their A delta fibers, then which are nociceptive fibers, so they conduct danger messages, but also things like warmth and cold. 
Um, and this is where we get back into the debate, the debate of how much does it change your reasoning. But I would say that if you start testing um, pinprick, so sharp touch, um, it's not difficult to do. Uh, box of neurotips is not expensive. You start finding a lot of stuff you wouldn't have found otherwise. And if nothing else, it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, often uh, the, the patient finds it um, educational. I don't know if it's the right word. So, like, oh, right, okay. And then you can, when that patch of their shin is a little bit more numb than it should be, or they've got a little bit of gain of function, so it, there's more sensitivity than there should be. Um, and it helps you to build up that picture. So I think probably in terms of answering your question about, well, what do we do for the objective assessment? I uh, think most people, I don't have anything else to add to people do this kind of day in, day out, a good hard neuro exam. But then this thing of think about, even if just for your own benefit, including this sharp touch uh, or pinprick exam as well, maybe even warm and cold. Um, we can talk a little bit about whether it's necessary. What do you think? Well, I mean, I think um, the necessity of it ends up being, like you've described, quite ambiguous because it's so specific to each individual case. Sometimes it's, it's very useful, mm. but it's usually useful because of what it, an outcome you're not going to know about how it computes with that patient mm. and what, how that, if that's the thing that might help them to comprehend this disruption of function for one mm -hmm. better term, then that's going to be useful. Mm -hmm. um, if it's not, if it's not to be, it's all about how, how timely and efficient you can do and what the mm -hmm. opportunity cost of, mm -hmm. of that time, mm -hmm. which is, I think where we ended up, uh, where I got to with Nina, or mm -hmm. at least that's how I've remembered it. <laughs> it's a while <laughs> back. I think um, it's maybe good to not, I can't really uh, emphasize it. It's not purely sort of this diagnostic thing of ridiculous or referred. It's also therapeutic. Um, it, it can be educational. But also you have this question in your mind, what's the state of health of this person's nerve? Right. Um, and, and then it's really helpful to make this distinction between gain and loss of function. Okay. Um, and I think this is another one of those penny drop. You didn't, you know it, but you don't quite know it sometimes. And this is certainly speaking from my own experience. As soon as you start to do your hard neuro exam and thinking you're looking for loss of nerve function, loss of strength, loss of reflex, loss of um, sensation, that is an implication. As I said, that there's some sort of conduction impaired, probably at the nerve root. We don't know, but probably at the nerve root. And that is an indication that that, person's nerve is in a state of poor health um and then when you do it again you're seeing well is this person's nerve a bit less healthy a bit more healthy um and um, maybe that seems obvious but it, it sometimes that hard neuro it just looks routine um but as you have that on your back of your mind what you're looking for and conversely if someone has gain of function so that pinprick the jump out their chair um uh, then you know that you can say that that nerve is kind of the conductions are being emphasized somehow in the nervous system or there's extra ones or there's a loss of sort of descending inhibition yeah um so i think it's that those kind of key questions a what is the problem is it ridiculous is it referred but then also okay what's the health of this person's nerve because that's your role as a almost like a custodian someone's come to you with a problem it's not inevitable that they should see a physio 
um, but they've seen a physio and now you have to say, are you the best person for them to see? Mm -hmm. um, are they going to get worse? In which case they maybe need to see someone like a, a surgeon. Um, so this is kind of, you're, you're monitoring the health of their nerve with the objective. Sure. That makes sense. No, it does. Mm -hmm. And um, I think one of the things that made your, so I've, I've, I've obviously read this work, I've then seen you present it. Um, it also, one of the things that I sort of flagged as being why it was attractive and popular is in part because you had a, a level of specificity that was brought to bear on the terminology that we've talked about. Then there was a level of you, you, were, you were comfortable to talk about the objective assessment process as being therapeutic, but also as being something that is more is more generalizable than than we used to like you know we always hoped that these were obvious and more clean cut matter of fact things that we could find out about that the terminology was vague and that the assessment was specific <laughs> you flipped that to some extent but then also have then appropriately couched it in saying all is not lost this is how you, you've been you've been willing to talk about the flexing of the index of suspicion as to how these things might influence your thinking, and that these tests aren't frivolous; they're not pointless. They're not just going through the motions. You're not doing it out of obligation, and therefore, to, if you if you make it therapeutic as well, these are really valuable ways to inform your reasoning. There comes to a point, though, that that beautiful mosaic you've managed to create in your assessment that comes to a bit of a crunch before we even get to how we might treat it. In a, in a sense, if they are in the right place. They are the right person to mm. try and help them through this person, not just as an advocate of pointing them and directing them, but also as, as, as being the right person, right professional to help them. Let's say that we're not yet, we've not found out enough. I want to know about where the thresholds are for further tests, scans, onward referral for Tom Jessen. And I know it's the, qu if ever there was a question you were going to hate me for, <laughs> it's stuff like this, because I will have to nail you down on it, mm. because I know it's individually specific, but if I had, if I forced you to cluster characteristics that meant that you were more likely to trigger a referral, more likely to think an injection would be a wise move for it, more likely to, well, we won't go injection yet, let's say scan or mm. further onward referral to, to say surgery. So, the, the if we go for the scan first, um, and I, I'd, I'm not trying to, avoid things but i'd want you to pitch in as well as someone who does a different job uh, to me and actually orders scans right okay, you have something yeah, to fine, say too yeah. but there's two reasons good reasons to get one is one if it would change something like the management if you're looking for like a surgical target sure um and the other is if you're concerned that there's something seriously wrong like this person has a serious pathology mm -hmm. is it okay if we leave serious pathology for this or do you want to go into it too No, much? no, no, that's fine. Mm. Yeah, I, I think we, c we, can, yeah. we, can, we can park that, yeah. I, I've um, worked in a service for most of my career where that's, and I think I would have thought this anyway, but that's been what you do. That you don't do something unless it would change something. Sure. Um, however, treading carefully here, I have read notes from elsewhere where the, the notes have gone... Um, Mrs. Smith has had ridiculous pain for um, a long time. It's not getting better. Um, therefore, I have ordered an MRI. But Mrs. Smith, for whatever reason, is clearly not a surgical candidate. Then it's more difficult to say that that was going to change anything except to show Mrs. Smith either what the problem is or that there's no problem at all. 
I'm sort of feeling my way along as I go because I don't know the answer to whether that's a good thing to do, but my hunch is it's not. Sure. Um, in terms of if you're in that kind of position in primary care, when do you refer on? I can say that my um, threshold lowered the more I learned about sciatica. Um, so when I was a kind of new grad physio, I probably held on to people for longer than I should have done for a number of reasons. Um, one would be that you don't want to admit you've, quote, failed. One would be that I used to think sciatica just got better, which I now don't, but there's still that perception out there that it has a favorable natural history in almost all cases. Another is I didn't appreciate how seriously painful it could be. Um, and another is I was probably too biased towards physio and I thought, you know, operations are rubbish, injections are rubbish, just rehab it. Sure. As I've learned more and kind of learned that although kind of at two years time operations and injections might not change anything, there's still a good degree of pain relief under that curve that people would benefit from. I've been more prone to referring people towards that kind of thing. Um, and probably become a little bit more pessimistic about the potential of physiotherapy to change the pain, um, not the quality of life exactly, which is a different thing, but to change the pain. Um, I've, yeah, again, become a little bit happier, more happy to refer on. And I've also become more aware of injections as often we think of injections as the thing to do when rehab fails. But certainly, and this seems quite clear in the recent NICE guidelines, we should almost flip it round for very severe acute radicular pain, which is for some people, they should be the first line intervention. Um, so it's not a case for radicular pain of, well, let's wait and see if you get better with two or three months of ca camel um, before we do the injection. It's if you're really suffering, can we do this soon if, if you can in your service? Mm -hmm. And we can come on to that because we don't want to imply that that's <laughs> something that would fix everyone at all. No, but it might, but it might make... Mm. It might predispose them to mm. a more positive functional outcome mm. with, with rehab yeah. rather than them yeah. struggling to even get on and off mm. the floor, never mind a cat camera. And I think the way, this is a different topic, but I think the, the anti-injection bias at the moment, at least in the circles that I'm aware of through Twitter and professionally, is probably a good thing on average, but doesn't suit ridiculous pain completely and can be quite sort of puritanical in many ways. Like there's now wrong with getting an injection, like you haven't failed in some no. way as a person. Mm. The other thing kind of continuing on this, these set of factors that have um, made, kind of lowered my threshold for referral away from me, if you like, is um, that there are a couple of good systematic reviews out, reviews out there that show that past six months, people's surgical outcomes get worse. So the longer you hold on, if you hold on to them past six months towards a year, then there's a potential that you're doing them a proper disservice. Right. In terms of then, is there any anything that you've found from your study of this that the generic advice to patients with sciatica is, has changed or the way in which mm. you then use that as, and educate them as part of your management? Mm. Yeah, so um, we, because we're talking about treatment and this is one of the first things people want to know, like what's going on? And I think we've <clears throat> touched on it a little bit. The first thing is to be aware 
to just cover some things we've mentioned, how weird it is and to acknowledge that and how sometimes it can be more painful than you expect and to acknowledge that and to try to explain um, any unusual symptoms that they're having as, as best you can um, so that they feel a bit more kind of in control of the situation. Um, that sort of goes without saying for most conditions in a way, but I think maybe doubly so for nerve pain because it is so unusual. The other thing people want to know is how long is it going to take for me to get better or will I get better, which we've touched on as well. Now, there is this idea of sciatica as being something that, or just radicular pain as being something that gets better. And I'm guilty of um, saying that to people. Um, but one of the things, again, uh, that Tina mentioned was that no one ever really introduced that possibility for her uh, so she saw a lot of physios um, when she developed sciatica and each one I, I believe said this is the kind of thing that gets better and even the ones that didn't didn't sort of introduce the possibility that it might not and this speaks to a wider issue in physiotherapy um, which is how good are we at um, telling people what to expect for the future um, and that's very difficult because there's the patient's expectations and hopes that you can get them better and there's yours expectations and hopes that you can um, but uh, and you want them to leave happy and you want to leave work happy as well um, but I think the important thing for any condition and particularly sciatica is to explain it in terms that at least allow for the possibility that it might not get better um, the recent um, so there's the, the Atlas trial is re I think it's kind of associated with Keel and the kind of start back yeah. um, group um, they've kind of um, for the last couple of years released some data of like the trajectories that people with sciatica tend to take mm -hmm. um, and they, the people in the trial, I think they weren't all acute onset of pain. So it was exactly, it was kind of very um, pragmatic. So it was who who comes in, they get to be in the trial. So some people, they got pain two weeks ago, some people two years ago and so on. And they found that um, generally speaking, um, there was a group of, I think it was sort of 50 to 60% of people who had mild sciatic pain who got better. There was a group of, I think around 20 to 30% of people who had um, moderate sciatic pain who didn't get better and then there was a smaller still group of people who had severe sciatica pain who again didn't get better and there was this tiny little group of three percent of people who had severe sciatic pain and they did get better so to, to me uh, what I took from that is that the severity of the symptoms that the person comes in with gives you a bit of a hint towards how much hope if that's the right term, it, you should give them. Um, if they've got quite mild symptoms, perhaps you can be um, a bit more sort of gung-ho about saying this should get better, let's do X, Y, and Z, keep an eye on it. If they're in severe pain, um, then it seems to be more likely that they'll be in severe pain um, for a long time. Uh, how, do you how do you marry that clinically mm. when, when we know the pessimism that could yeah, yeah so expectations are a big part because 
this, you certainly don't want to be misleading, and I'm mm-hmm. sensitive to that. And mm-hmm. I, I don't, don't want to sound like I'm disagreeing with you on it, but I'm mm-hmm. just also just that. <sighs> yeah, and I'm, I think the thing to say is you, you're obviously not saying, well, according to the Atlas trial, there's uh, only three percent <laughs> chance you're going to get better. Sure. Um, so, and it, again, it has to come out of their experiences with similar things, like what position are they in, how utterly miserable are they, do they just need a little bit of a win, you know. But I tend to say something like. Um, a good proportion of people with this problem get better, um, and if if they have certain features that make me think they will, you know, you're young, you're healthy, it's a shit thing to happen, but your body will hopefully sort this out, and there's things that we can do together to help that. Yeah. Um, I think we should be optimistic. Having said that, I never want to promise anyone anything, and I don't have a crystal ball, so I can't promise that you will get better. Yeah. Um, and we need to consider that possibility. And I, ho- I hope I'm not flattering myself. Most people appreciate the honesty. Yeah. Um, On first assessment, I suppose I'm just concerned that that 3% of people with severe symptoms mm-hmm. that did get better as to the likelihood of them being in that 3% is going to be reduced if that conversation goes awry. Mm. And and that's the bit that it's mm. sort of like, you know, you, you don't want to give the false hope. Op- totally yeah, so we agree uh, it's false hope if you were to suggest that they... You're inferring to a three th- percent mm-hmm. that it, you, that they're actually a ninety-three percent is, yeah, is, is yeah. just not okay. Yeah. But there won't be a three percent at all if we're too pessimistic. So it's a yeah, fine balance yeah. there. Expectations predict outcome. It doesn't mean that they cause a good outcome. No. And because this is the other thing with expectation studies is we know that if people think they get better, they often do get better. And often what's extrapolated from that is that somehow positive thinking made them get better, when no. in reality it's probably more they were just right. Yeah, they yeah, just yeah, knew no, that you, know, you get a sense that something's going to get better. Um, so I, I'm, uh, I'm not, I know you would agree with me, I'm, I'm, I'm not that worried, to be honest, that giving someone, like allowing for that possibility somehow becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy somehow. Sure. Um, and I think there's, you know, ways to do it when you're in that moment and not in like a podcast room that you can just explain to people give them this optimism this realistic sense of hope which is so important um but without saying without being hard line about things sure because else they're gonna get stuck in that waiting period of well they said it would get better they said the disc would resolve whatever um because this is again coming something comes from the I think it's Robertson or Roberts, the qualitative research is that people with sciatica seem to naturally or, or are more prone to getting stuck in that sort of slump of waiting for things to get better before they get on with things. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure how true it is, but certainly in the, the, the argument of this, this research that people with low back pain are, find it easier to when their pain doesn't get better, get back to meaningful activities. Yeah. Whereas people with sciatica don't often because they've been told it would get better or they feel like have this sense that they need something to fix them. So to just introduce that possibility early on, I think this is, is obviously a skill to it and it's not something you want to do with everyone, but it's so important, I think. And it giving them a clue as to how to swing the odds and swing the odds in their oh, favor. Yeah, control. There's no point in saying like making someone a data point. You've got to give them a sense of control. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, but 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 absolutely challenging. And so even on a what advice would we give question, we end up in a, in a situation like that where, on the prognostic question, 
um, as to as to what they should. What about what about on something like how much should they do? How much should they mm-hmm. tolerate? That's mm-hmm. that's one of the the key variables to my mind is that, you know, and and uh, less so with reticular pain, but on various different other body parts, I'll often say it's one of my little talking points. Is I'll say to them that the people people that do really uh, poorly on this, the ones that do too much or do too little, if you get mm-hmm. a sweet spot mm-hmm. which is very individualized, then you'll mm-hmm. do well. I've given that one away, haven't I? But um, <laughs> le- I, d- I do that less, I think, with this because it's because of the latent pain and all the stuff mm. I mentioned earlier. But is there a particular? You you did a, a really lovely piece uh, on um, exercising with with pain, and what do you feel is your top advice for mm. giving patients as to both? And I want type and <coughs> as well type mm. of exercise as well. So it doesn't um, obviously that depends a little bit on the position that they're at. So with acute sciatica, it's difficult because I think naturally as physios and also because it's sort of in the zeitgeist, we want people to get going as soon as possible. Um, but there's a, uh, it's kind of, again, obvious when you say it, there's an interesting paper by DiMatteo and Toby Hawes on there as well saying all this research that says that bed rest is a disaster for back pain, that's back pain, that's not sciatica. Um, and there's not really anything in either direction that says that if you get an acute onset of sciatica, there's any harm to take it to bed for a few days. And I know that some of the people that I've seen, I'd want to just stay in bed. And uh, would it do <laughs> any? Would it do any harm? I don't know. So I think um, certainly, if your tendency, as mine certainly is, and many physios are, is to say, don't worry about it. Crack on with things it might be worth allowing people to give themselves a break. And of course it has to come. Sometimes it's good to think of things in the framework of like endurance copers, avoidance copers, like what's this person naturally done anyway? Mm. And is that adaptive? Is it maladaptive? Um, Have they stopped doing everything and they're just staying at home? And then maybe the next step is to just get out a little bit. Have they carried on doing everything and they're miserable? And maybe the next step is to say, is it all right to give yourself a break? And this is all kind of in the acute phase. I think Basically, I'm talking around the point that um, I think it's it's obviously a bell curve. There's too little, there's too much. And as if I think it's a case of looking at your own disposition as a physio maybe and saying maybe uh, I can only speak to my experience that I was probably urging people to go too much and it's okay to give yourself a break yeah. um, with that kind of acute. I think as, as well, before we go on, to chronic and coming onto this thing of exercise, which I've sort of, when I did, I did like a talk on this. We did we were there together. We haven't mentioned it at a primary care conference, mm-hmm. and um, I got like I didn't really practice it very well, and I got cut <laughs> off halfway through because I, d- I ran out of time. And then at the end, people came up to me and they said, um, "What were you going to say about exercise? What were you going to say about management?" And I was like, oh, God, I wish I'd got around to that. It's such a shame. <laughs> but like in my head, I was thinking, God, you would have been so disappointed. <laughs> like, I, don't, like, I don't know what exercise to do. Uh, the interesting question, though, is with acute pain is, and we want to come on to chronic, is do you do anything? Is it because it doesn't make any sense to me to do a corrective exercise after the horse has bolted? Like, there's no point in doing a stabilization exercise when someone's just had, like, it's too late. Just give them a break. Like, they don't need to do a bird dog right now. Or or if the trans abs could just just, just (laughs) snug that disc back in. I guess that's the 
not a nonsense. So I, I don't, uh, if, even, if you, even if you think that there's like a, a role for corrective exercise, and there may well be, I don't think it's then if someone's just come to you and they're in pain, they're suffering. Um, so I, I think the obvious next thing to mention is, um, what do you call them, like gliders and sliders? As far as I'm aware, um, and this is kind of jumping off something I think Anina mentioned, is there isn't evidence for a sciatica to say that they help. There's an absence of evidence in either direction. So all I do is, as I say, I, I do it as a test. If it's not too uncomfortable for them, then I turn that test into an exercise. And if they like it, or even if they're <coughs> sort of indifferent to it, try that at home for a few weeks. And some people come back and say, God, thank God for that exercise. It helps me get back to sleep. Some people, they can take it or leave it. Um, so I think certainly there's a role for that, but we shouldn't be sort of blindly just going to it. Like this person needs a nerve glider. Hmm. And you're, 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 you're reading into the, not just the, the outcome studies of that, but also thinking about the pathophysiology as, you, as mm -hmm. we've talked about. It's not then lent you towards this concept of if only we had the right type of tensioner, that makes sense for remodeling those those tissues of that mm. pathology. Because that's mm. often the argument that gets made. It mm. gets made from a, a, a version or a biased sense of, of basic science, whereas I've never heard you speak at that. Mm. You've not like sort of thought, oh, that's where that logic really sits well with me and that's why I'm a big slider fan now. Nope. <laughs> I knew I'd get a, a, a direct answer from you. Um, so yeah, but what about um, things like aerobic exercise mm. and stuff like that? Um, I think people, I think we should, if we can leave aside the idea of corrective exercise to correct an imbalance that you think might have caused the problem, then, as you say, we're looking onto well exercise for other reasons, just because it's good to exercise. Like, you, you know, you don't want this to become the time that you look back on and you're like, oh, I stopped playing football then. Um, because exercise, for some, not all people, causes like a, a descending inhibition. You know, you get a release of all sorts of lovely chemicals and things in your body. It can feel nice for some people. Um, and also... Like, I'm not uh, aware of any sort of direct specific evidence, but it just, <laughs> this is like famous sort of dangerous words, it just makes sense yeah. that to keep the body healthy would keep the nerve healthy, right? Sure. Um, so, uh, and, and in terms of sort of um, the overall research evidence, there's a little bit of weak evidence to suggest that in for people with sciatica, if they do like a structured exercise program, they feel a bit better in the short term um, than people who don't. And are just advised to keep active. It's very weak evidence. Um, and again, in the medium to long term, it's all much of a muchness. Yeah. So I would say for aerobic exercise, uh, you're, if, if it's true, you're safe to move. Um, you will not do any more damage to the nerve I'm obviously pausing there because we don't know what aerobic exercise they're going to do. It means different things. But so you, unless you do any damage to the nerve, you should exercise within tolerable pain. And that means different things to different people. You should exercise within tolerable pain yep. that does not increase gradually during exercise and decreases gradually once you've finished. But you should also be aware, as you say, of that kind of latent pain so there's that element of exploration there. Like if, if they're in a position where they're happy to try that and see what happens, 
what's that flare-up like? Is that acceptable to you? Was it worth it? Um, again, coming back to Tina, she says that after she goes, to, she exercises regularly, and afterwards her leg feels tingly. It's not nice. I think she calls it her fairy lights or something. It's quite like a nice term for it. But she's accepted that as part of keeping fit and active. She gets this flare-up afterwards. So as long as they're also kind of prepared for that. Sure, um, sure go for it. What type of exercise? Um, I think it's with anyone with kind of spinally related pain, they, they get this kind of fixation on things that they should do, um, Pilates and swimming. And there's like a reason for that. It's gentle and it's nice for some people, but you should also not make them feel limited to that. Um, so why would you take up Pilates when you've never been interested in it before? Maybe if that's all you can do, but is it possible for you to do something you enjoy and would choose to do anyway, or at least some version of that or something similar to it? So you're negotiating that with them. And then in terms of actually doing it, again, I'm, I'm, it's just general physio. Like if, if, they're, if they seem like they're happy to go for it and come back in a few weeks and tell you how it went, that's maybe enough. If you need to make more of a plan and say, okay, well, let's do two lengths on Tuesday, see how it feels on Wednesday, and then do a bit more, on, you know. So where do people find more from you? Uh, we will certainly be linking to the text that we've mentioned. but uh um, At Thomas underscore Jessen on Twitter, very close to 1,000 followers, Jack. Oh, really? It's the only reason I'm here kick is you to over. see if I can get over the line. Nice. Um, you can have some of mine. <laughs> in person... Um, Michigan. If anyone's in Michigan and they have like work for me to do, yeah, build. I can like build a wall or like I don't know. <laughs> is that, is that you're offering your services <laughs> to build a wall. I don't, I don't know. I need to do something. I'm moving to Michigan. <laughs> He's moving to Michigan in the autumn. Yeah. If any of our American followers want a yeah. brilliant clinician who is also a, a top, oh no 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 I can't I'm not bright licensed to practice out there no 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 well mm. sorry I, I meant to just consult oh. loosely because <laughs> you know you, they, 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 they can you can't practice can but shovel you can snow y they can they can call you and you can pontificate <laughs> over the shortcomings of various I can certainly do things that, yeah. so uh, that's what I'm offering you out as uh, plus yeah brickwork <laughs> that is of all the things for you to offer your services for in Trump's America <laughs> you just put yourself out as and a we're the wrong layer. end of the country as well that yeah. is hilarious yeah, yeah. <laughs> you build them all up there um, so yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, make you blush one last time uh, to say that it's been an absolute privilege to have even um, been able to observe your development and growth over the over the years of knowing you. Uh, it's a massive loss to us as a country, but also to the health <laughs> service for you to not be uh, able to keep helping mm. patients with pain. Keep thinking as hard as you do on this, and uh, please do keep sharing it. It's yeah. great to have brought your voice as well as your words to Thank the world. You. And from from my point of view as well, like I, sounds, I used to listen to this podcast um, when I was at uni, like just over and over again, like certain episodes three, four times, um, and to be here and on the podcast just shows like how low your standards have fallen. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> So You're really scraping the barrel now, Joe. So true, <laughs> absolutely. No, he's, he's got us. You didn't have to say it on air, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, and coming come next week, no, no, coming come next week, we have our work experience student <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's coming on to talk about what they know of the knee. So yeah, that's that is Tom's just totally rumbled us. Uh, yeah, we'll have an actual expert on next time. Uh, since he's he's said it, and uh, I will now. Uh, but no, it's been it's been brilliant to see you emerge into into a true expert on this field. And uh, whilst you won't call it yourself, 
uh, is true, and especially for how it applies to general practice in MSK. So um, I'm sure you guys have enjoyed it, but please do follow Tom on Twitter and keep in touch with him as he then uh, explores the world and ho just keep persuading him to talk about these things and write them down and then we'll no doubt be able to put him back on the microphones at some other point when he explores another topic better than others have. So thanks a lot. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Well, there you are. Another one in the bank for us and yet another podcast that I'll need to have a few listens to to get everything I can out of it. And believe me, I listen more than most of most of you uh, just editing these things. So please head over to reform.physio forward slash conference for your big R's ticket. Follow the podcast at TPMP at TPM podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You can follow Mr. Chu at Jack A. Chu and most importantly at Thomas underscore Jesson. Follow myself, the Rheumatology One Trick Pony, and, uh, at Physio Jack, um, and keep an eye out for Health Matters 3 in two weeks' time, which is hands down one of the biggest eye-openers we have managed for a long, long time. We'll leave you with Tom signing us out in the usual cheesy fashion, and we'll see you soon. You're listening to the Physio Matters podcast, discussing Physio Matters, because Physio Matters. <laughs>